As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This week on Equal Play, I am so honored to bring to you all a pioneer. Flat out, this woman is a trailblazer. Our guest was the founding president of the WNBA, a past president of USA Basketball, an inductee of the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame and the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame. In 2013, she was tapped to become the fifth commissioner of the Big East Conference. Of course, by now, you all must know I'm talking about the one and only Val Ackerman. Val, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks, Sandy. Great to be here. Yeah, um, I I absolutely love talking to you. You and I got to speak last year for a big project I was doing on the WNBA and the Chicago Sky, and your insight is just brilliant. I could have spoken to you for hours, quite frankly, so I'm, I'm really excited to bring some of that conversation that we had to our listeners. Before we got into your history with the WNBA, I wanted to start with your history in sport in general. So starting from the very beginning, how old were you when you realized that you wanted a career in the sports field, sports business? Well, um, uh, first, first, thanks very much for all the kind words. <laughs> uh, you know, I, re- I really I'm sort of wondering who you're talking about. So I'm very humbled by by the acknowledgement, uh, I, I've had a, you know, I've had a very, very exciting run for sure. Um, so, you know, I, uh, I was interested in sports beginning at a very early age um, as an athlete. And uh, that, you know, that aspiration, those dreams were nurtured mostly by my, you know, by my dad, who uh, was a, a athletics director at the high school level. Mm-hmm. And why, why did, why was that important? Well, I was growing up in the late sixties, early seventies before title nine and before um, the kinds of opportunities that girls and women have today uh, were plentiful. Um, I, you know, I didn't have much uh, of a chance. So thanks, thanks to my dad, I, I sort of, um, you know, did the backyard and basement stuff <laughs> and then began to play sports in high school. Uh, went on and played basketball in college. Mm-hmm. And the answer to your question is um, I went to law school, um, um, you know, eventually after college. And it was there, really, that I said, okay, I want to be, be a lawyer uh, in the sports world. And that became, you know, kind of the quest to, to get a job with a sports organization and to, um, you know, practice law in that setting. And I was very fortunate that I was able to do that beginning in 1988. Now, it'll be 35 years this fall um, as a uh, as a staff lawyer with the NBA. That, that's really how my car- career got, got started. 
And before that career got started, you were one of the first women to receive an athletic scholarship at the University of Virginia. And I wonder if at the time you really grasped the magnitude of of that or or if it took you time to in reflection to look back and and really absorb what that meant. I, I, I'd say the answer is both. I mean, when I was um, when I was at UVA in the um, in the late '70s, Title IX was in the books, but sort of was being slowly enforced. It, it didn't, you know, that equity that it promised didn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. And things went, you know, when I was at Virginia, the the differences between the men's basketball team and the women's, which was a Final Four quality team at that time, mm-hmm. and the women's team, which was essentially getting off the ground, were very stark. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, was I aware of that? Sure. But at the same time, I, you know, I was pretty happy to be there. <laughs> you know, I was going to, a, I was going to a, a great school, a school of my dreams, um, part of the country I wanted to be. Um, and, you know, basically getting my, getting my education paid for. Yeah. Because I started out with a partial scholarship in Virginia, and then my second year there became a full ride. Mm-hmm. And so, like, what, you know, what wasn't there to like about that experience? <laughs> So yeah, I was sort of a, you know aware of where we were relative to the men at that time, but I would say you, the second part of your question was true too because it was years later that I, I I do think the enormity of being on the ground floor, um, especially now when I look at what women's athletes at the collegiate level have today, it's with you know some pangs of jealousy but mostly joy because uh, you know it has it has been uh, quite a journey and and we've come a long way since since my days back in Virginia in the, you know, late seventies, early eighties. So I'm curious hearing that answer because I've, I've heard from a lot of young reporters and, and young women, quite frankly, who talk about this idea of balancing, being thankful to, to be somewhere, to be in a position, to have an opportunity while also, you know, pushing the boundaries for more. So at that early stage in your life, how did you deal with that of being grateful for the opportunity, but also knowing that you guys were far from, from having the same opportunities as your male counterparts? Um, I, 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 I think I would describe it as, um, you know, not militancy mm-hmm. for, for better or worse. You know, that wasn't sort of my style mm-hmm. to get up to get up on a table and you know scream you know scream to the hilltops. I mean, it was more just taking advantage of the opportunities I had. Um, you know, we uh, we had an opportunity when I was at Virginia. We you know, and 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 we sort of we sort of um, proved ourselves competitively. My first year at Virginia with a lot of walk-ons. Mm-hmm. We were, I think, eight and nineteen, something bad. And then by the time I graduated, four years later, we were twenty-two and ten for the mm-hmm. second year in a row. We had won twenty games. We got nationally ranked as high as number eleven midway through the year before we ran out of steam. Um, and you know, we were beating teams that we couldn't we couldn't even you know come close to beating mm-hmm. um, when I started out. So there was progress and satisfaction in the competitive progress. And, you know, sometimes success breeds success. And I, I think the combination of, you know, doing our part while we were there to prove that we could play and that we could bring honor to the school mm-hmm. um, helped, you know, help make possible in a modest way the opportunities and the doors that became open for the, for the players that followed us. 
I read that you played one season overseas in France. How did that experience prepare you for what was to come in, in your career professionally? Well, I, um, I I would describe that interlude. It was right after I graduated, the fall after I graduated, I should say. And um, it was really, you know, the itch I needed to scratch was travel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as any as any college basketball player will tell you, you know, if you're interested in a semester abroad, don't play basketball <laughs> because <laughs> it's a two semester sport, and it just wasn't, you know, wasn't possible. And so I I think had I not played basketball, I would have really um, embraced the opportunity to to spend a semester in a different country, but I didn't have that chance. So when I graduated, that was my semester abroad that I never had. I, I, I Long story, I, I wound up with an opportunity to play for a, a club team in France, Central uh-huh. France, through a Virginia connection. And I went over there, um, and, you know, I didn't speak the language. It was before the Internet, before cell phones. My parents were very panicked, but I was really determined to see the world you know, even in a modest way. And so I, I, I trooped over there and it really, it was a very eye opening and, and broadening experience to be sure. Um, I don't know that that, I mean, you know, we all, we're all products of the varying experiences yeah. we have in our lives. And I think for that one, for me, it was, I, you know, I, I had to be very independent. I couldn't just run home <laughs> if something was not working out. I had to figure out how to communicate with people who spoke English but didn't always want to speak English to me. Um, and, you know, I got to see the world, and, and it was very humbling, frankly, to, you know, to see what people thought of the USA and Americans, and I, I felt like a little mini ambassador for my country. So it was, you know, it was one of the best ex- – in some ways, I wish I had stayed longer, mm-hmm. but I only did it for a season and then came back and went on, went on with my life. How would you compare the season that you spent overseas to, to what – eventually, you know, has become players in the W's experience overseas, which, again, has grown over over the past, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. But, yeah, in talking to the players of the W during your time, how would you compare your your year there to to what would become, again, the professional experience overseas for women? I'll bet it's probably pretty similar, more similar than different to what players today um, experience. I You know, I think you know, my observations, having lived it and having, you know, been, so, you know, part of the WNBA mm-hmm. was that it, it sort of depends on what country you go to. I mean, I was playing in central France. Uh, I was actually second division. It was modest in terms of my pay, my living arrangements, et cetera. The best opportunities for women overseas pay significant money, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. involve, you know, significantly um, sort of high quality, you know, living arrangements, I'm sure. If you're a good player, you, you would have an agent who could negotiate a very good deal for you. And I wasn't quite in that category. So I'm sure there are players today that have, have you know, experiences that would blow away anything that, you know, that I had. But at the same time, you know, if you were like me, pretty good player, not a superstar, you know, you'll end up someplace and, It'll be modest, and, you know, you'll make the best of it, and that's kind of what happened to me. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, when we started the WNBA, it, it, you know, we decided to play in the summer because we felt that gave the league a better business commercial opportunity. Mm-hmm. But one of, the, you know, one of the reasons was because we wanted to, the players who had opportunities in the winter overseas to be able to continue to do that mm-hmm. if they were so inclined because the seasons at that time didn't really overlap. The money was good. 
um, you know, basically created two revenue stream, income streams mm-hmm. for the players that we thought on balance was actually a positive. Um, and so, you know, here we are, whatever, 26, seven years later, and, and that's still, you know, that's still happening. It's not for everybody. And players who do the year-round thing over a long period of time, I, I think it's safe to say, um, you know, may find that tiring. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it was, frankly, part of the plan. The players would have that opportunity. And, as, you know, as you noted, many, many today still take advantage of that. Right. And it's so interesting considering recent rule changes with prioritization being implemented and the way that that's going to have an impact on the league over the course of the next 26 years. Because, again, like you said, the 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 decision to to play this the W season during the summer was strategic and it impacted players ability, like you said, to play overseas and have those two sources of income. And and now we'll see how some of these rule changes impact the league, like I said, over the course of the next 26. But before we get into the WNBA a little bit more, I want to talk about your career in the NBA, which began in the late 80s. Was that a a goal of yours? Were you envisioning working in the NBA? And and how did that opportunity, the multiple opportunities you had in the NBA, either meet your expectations or or exceed them? Well, you know, one of the happiest days of my life, honestly, was when I got my job offer to go in-house as a staff lawyer at the NBA Mm -hmm. in 1988. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, once I sort of as I mentioned earlier, knitted together my desire to be a lawyer and my desire to work in sports after having played sports for so many years, you know, the NBA became a natural uh, destination, uh, a dream destination. And I won't sort of bore the listener here with the, you know, with the, with the sequence (laughs) that led to my getting my job offer, but to, to suffice it to say, I, you know, I was I was able to get myself interviewed when I heard about an opening through a colleague, and um, I think the fact that I had played basketball mm-hmm. was helpful. The fact that I, I did a stint on Wall Street when I couldn't get a sports law job at a law school in 1985, I went to work for a big Wall Street law firm, and that two-year experience at the firm had nothing to do with sports, but it, frankly, in many ways, made possible my job at the NBA because of the resume enhancement that it represented and some of the partners at the firm I worked at had ties to David Stern. So things just sort of came together. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I got the NBA job, it was, it was a dream, absolutely a dream come true. I'm... And I was, you know, working at the league at a time when it was much smaller than it is today. It was mm-hmm. easier to get noticed uh, by the top people. And, uh, you know, uh, I, you know, I, my, my arrival coincided with, some very very interesting projects that David Stern was um, was nurturing and capitalizing on. So it was really, you know, frankly, one of the you know one of the most exciting times in my professional career was my early years at the NBA. I think that's so valuable for young listeners to hear how a, a redirection can actually be directing you towards the opportunity that you're meant for. And and like you said, those couple years outside of sport setting you up for an even greater opportunity in sport it, it's it's what was meant to be and and it ended up you know leading to great opportunity for you and i just think again like i said that's so important for young people to hear because so often 
we can get distracted by something not working out or, or focus too hard on, on something not working out when in reality it's unfolding exactly as it should. And, you know, you worked close, you mentioned David Stern and, and you obviously worked very, very closely with him. I wonder if, if you remember the first conversation you had with him or the first time the idea of the WNBA was brought up to you and, and what your thoughts were. Well, I vividly remember my first conversation with him, which was my, you know, the last interview that I had to pass, the last test I had to pass was uh -huh. an interview before I got my offer at the NBA. And I was sort of terrified, but I must have said something right because the offer, you know, the offer followed. Mm -hmm. um, but we, you know, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of hard question because the WNBA just didn't drop out of the sky. Right. There were, there was a progression that started, I would say, uh, circa, you know, probably when I got hired and David saw in me somebody who might someday, you know, be able to make his dream come true, which was that there would be a WNBA. Mm -hmm. I give him the credit here. He was, he had the idea like in a, you know, a top drawer of his desk, just waiting for the right moment. I'm convinced. And so it was really, frankly, starting around 1990. Mm-hmm. Uh, through, through me, the NBA started building bridges with the women's basketball community, mm -hmm. um, starting with women's college basketball and then eventually supporting the USA Women's National Team program starting in 95 after a couple of years of men's dream team positive experiences that I was part, very much part of. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, that, that positive experience um, in 1995-96 with the USA national team, subject of a documentary that ESPN produced last summer, highly recommended if you're interested in the origins of the WNBA called Dream On. Mm -hmm. um, and I was at the center of that. I mean, you know, that, that really was the progression that led to the WNBA. And I was involved in every element of those steps. Um, and so when, you know, when, when it came time to begin getting serious about a women's NBA, um, I don't remember. I mean, there were so many conversations and it was, again, it was sort of progressing because of these other things we were doing, um, that, you know, I do, I do remember one anecdote. I remember I was being in my office and David comes into my office and he was eating something. He was always snacking during the day. <laughs> and he just stood at my door and he said something like, would we play in the summer? And I said, yeah, you know, that was, remember, that was the plan. We get better TV in the summer and we're not up against the NBA and the players could go overseas if they wanted in the winter and so on. It's like, okay, got it. So I turned around and walked out and, you know, then he got on the phone and I'm sure he was calling NBA owners at that time mm -hmm. to nail down, you know, their support, which was of course necessary given the level of the investment that the NBA was going to make in this, you know, this new venture. Mm -hmm. So it all kinds of runs together. But um, again, I, I can't give David Stern enough credit what he did to make um, this this women's professional basketball journey possible. Yeah, I mean, I, I know covering the league, I, I speak for so many fans, I'm sure, when I say there's just not enough to consume or hear or watch about the origin of the WNBA. So you bring up that documentary and, and absolutely anybody who wants to hear more about the league's origin absolutely has to watch that. But something that I found so interesting last year when you and I spoke was when you described David Stern's pitch to NBA owners about getting involved in the WNBA and 
and you relayed that to me and and I wonder if you could share it again what his pitch was to NBA owners about why yeah getting involved with the WNBA was an incredible business opportunity well that was the pitch it it was you know less hey right thing to do than hey there's um there's an enormous business opportunity here for the NBA um, and for the game of basketball. Mm-hmm. If we can bring women into the game in a deeper way. And, you know, and so that was sort of part one. Part two was we can own basketball. We, the NBA can own basketball year round. Mm. That was what you said. Yes. That because, you know, the men are sort of in the winter, the women could be in the summer. It becomes a 12 month proposition then. Mm-hmm. And frankly, you know, uh, that was true. It, it did. Where, where we missed was um, we, we thought there'd be more overlap between the NBA and the WNBA fan, mm-hmm. quite honestly. There, there really wasn't. That was a surprise. Uh, we did expect to attract more women fans and young girls and so on, young boys too, ideally. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the NBA fan um, – didn't really sort of come over to the WNBA side like we imagined they might in the summertime. I mean, mm-hmm. the vision was if we were an NBA um, market with the NBA team running the WNBA team, then the NBA season ticket holder would just keep their seat, mm-hmm. right, year-round. And that really wasn't happening. It, would, it turned out to be pretty much a, a different and new fan base, which, by the way, was great, too, because we felt like we were converting – you know, people who may not have been fans of basketball to basketball through mm-hmm. the WNBA. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we had some very interesting theses going on there. Uh, but again, you know, David was really a dead set. He had to be in convincing the owners that this was going to be, you know, it's a business opportunity. It's a long-term opportunity. It wasn't going to be a sprint. It might take a generation, you know, to build the base and the revenues. Um, and again, it was just sort of his vision mm-hmm. about the importance of women to the game of basketball. And I'll forever be grateful to him for that, uh, you know, for belief in that, you know, that concept. Because I, I think as you look at other sports, you know, the, the, the NBA and the WNBA were truly pioneering mm-hmm. in making that connection. You know, I'm curious what your opinion is about selling the WNBA as the same or a similar product as the NBA, because we see a lot of, um, a lot of, I guess, haters, for lack of a better term, describe the WNBA as not being up to the same standard as the NBA when it's an, an entirely different product completely. And so when you talk about, you know, that fan base not translating directly to the WNBA season, what do you attribute that to? Was it because the WNBA was, was trying to be, you know the the summer league to the to the NBA's winter league, and instead of being its own separate thing completely, or, or what do you attribute that to? I would say that consumers are fussy. Consumers are pressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, sports consumers, that is, with a lot of different options. Um, you know, they're going to pick and choose the sports they like. Some may like golf. Some may like tennis. Some may not like basketball. Some may not like soccer. It doesn't. You know, it just. Fans are fussy, and they they would have their reasons, I think, for supporting one sport over the other. I Mm -hmm. think, you know, discriminating basketball fans might well say they prefer the quality of play in men's basketball. They like dunking. You know, um, 
They, they maybe think that the players are playing at a higher level in some cases. And certainly, I think in the early years of the WNBA, that was certainly true. We, um, you know, the league was new. Players, the players of then, we had some great players, don't get me wrong. But, you know, the depth of rosters, for example, that you have now, we mm-hmm. didn't have then. Mm-hmm. I mean, now it's hard to make a roster, as, as best I can tell, in the WNBA. Um, you know, we, um, you know, every player is, a, is sort of a, a big star. Mm-hmm. And so I think the quality of play maybe wasn't what, what it could have been then or should have been in the minds of some prospective fans. And now I think that's changed. I, you know, uh, you know, we're seeing big guards, we're seeing better shooters, more athletic players. You know, the coaches um, are key mm-hmm. in terms of the style of play. And so, you know, the fact is men's basketball is not for everybody and women's basketball may not be for everybody. And, you know, every sport has just kind of got to find its own niche. Um, and, and a lot of that has to do with sort of basics like, you know, fan bandwidth, um, you know, star power, mm-hmm. rivalries, what time of year you play, what day of week you play, what time of day you play all factor in, I'll, you know, I'll give you one more example. We played in the summer right? and which was good for TV, but one of our prime TV windows was on a Saturday at one o'clock in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cause that was a good, you know, that was a TV window that we were given by NBC, a major broadcast network. Right. Problem is on a summer Saturday, that might be hard to entice a fan to come inside or even watch on television because mm-hmm. they're out at the beach or, you know, taking a bike ride. Right. So those are the, they're so it's it's a complex equation, frankly to to sort of you know uh, sort of figure out what it is that's going to get a fan to consume your you know sports product. But you know I think we guessed well on in many areas and and again I, you know I think the fact that the WNBA is growing now and the style of play and quality of play has risen so dramatically only bodes well for you know the next 26 years. Absolutely. Something I, I'm also curious about hearing um, from you is is about the Sky's birth. And you stepped down from your position in the WNBA in 2005 prior to the Sky's first season in 2006. But you really watched and, and, and worked to, to help bring that franchise to life. What was the significance of Chicago finally getting a franchise nine years after le- the league's first season in your well, mind? Well, it was a victory. Yeah, I, I mean, not to, it was a victory for sure. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, it was um, just sort of, you know, it, it was what it was. We, when we started the WNBA, um, you know, we wanted a national league. We started with eight teams. It was, you know, north, south, east, west. And it was kind of selective. It was NBA teams basically opting in. Mm-hmm. And that was the power of David Stern to sell to particular owners, you know, this opportunity that, you know, that that he thought they should be part of. And we were very lucky because, you know, New York Knicks wanted a team and the Lakers took a team and uh, the Houston Rockets took a team mm-hmm. and, you know, Phoenix and Utah and um you know, Charlotte and, and others, you know, they took teams and those were good. And it gave us some East West balance and major markets. But frankly, there were other big cities that weren't their NBA owners at that time weren't interested. Mm-hmm. They just weren't interested in, you know, getting in on it. And so I count among those Chicago, 
Philadelphia. D.C. and Detroit came later. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Dallas right. won a team early on. And so we just took what we could get. And so Chicago, back to your question, was one of those teams that just wasn't ready to bite. And I do remember we made some, you know, efforts with the Bulls and their ownership and management at that time to try to convince them to sign on. And they they just were not interested. I just can't put it I, – I can't sugar it. They just weren't interested. They didn't want to – they didn't want to be involved. And, you know, when we changed the model of the WNBA a few years in to allow for independent ownership of teams mm-hmm. versus requiring an affiliation between NBA ownership and the management of a WNBA team, when we changed the rule and opened that up, um, you know, we, we had the two, you know, the two, the two examples of, uh, of the new opportunities were number one, Connecticut not does not have an NBA team in Connecticut, but we had a, a, a very intriguing ownership opportunity by the Mohegan uh, tribe and operation in Uncasville. And there we were able to capitalize on the intense interest in women's basketball continuing to this day. I see it very closely because UConn is one of the schools in the Big East, right? you know, in the state of Connecticut. And then the other one was Chicago, right? Where, you know, Michael Alter, who's been with the league, you know, since he, you know, Chicago came in, was willing to step up and become an owner of an NBA team, uh, apart from, you know, any connection to the Bulls. And so, you know, Michael, to this day, is a good friend of mine. And I just, you know, can't say enough about his, his support of women's basketball, had some leading years there, getting the sky, you know, built. And then what payoff a couple of years ago, right, when he when they finally won a championship with Candace Parker leading the way. Um, so it was very much a journey to get Chicago in on it. And to your point, yeah, uh, you know, we were working on all this. And then I made the decision to step down. And it was um, I was at the announcement when mm-hmm. Chicago came in in February of 2005. But David decided he wanted to do the honors. There, I, I went along, but because I was on my way out the door, you know, it was agreed. David, David, you know, made the presentation, and I know he was very, very, very happy and very proud that we were able to bring that big market into the league, and you know, and here they are. What do you think would have been his reaction to this guy's championship in 2021? Oh, he loved every championship. I mean, <laughs> you know, he especially when it was won by an NBA owner. <laughs> and, and we had several of those and it was very it was fun actually because you you know I was dealing with these you know these guys um who were owning NBA teams they had WNBA teams you know and they I, I think at, at first they were sort of doing David a favor by by signing on but you could see their interest levels pick up when their teams were good mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden they had a chance to win a championship and then all of a sudden they won a championship and the the metamorphosis from, you know, sort of casual observer to super fan <laughs> was always was always fun. It was very fun always to see that unfolding. And Absolutely. I remember seeing that with Bill Davidson in Detroit and Jerry Buss in Los Angeles and Les Alexander, of course, in Houston the first four years. Um, and then my last WNBA championship in 04, Howard Schultz, at a Starbucks was the principal owner of the, of the storm. And he couldn't have been more excited that they won the champion. That was my last championship trophy that I presented. And there was Howard, 
you know, this, this global business icon, you know, grinning from ear to ear because mm-hmm. his WNBA team had won the championship. It was, it was pretty cool, mm-hmm. to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are some great owners in, in the WNBA, absolutely. So it, it's great to hear about about past champions and and the way that they celebrated their teams in those moments. You know, um, we're we're coming to the end of our time together on this interview, and I appreciate all of your time so much. But I really wanted to get into your experience in the Big East and and something particular, obviously, is a hot button topic, name, image and likeness. And it's really changed sports forever. I mean, college sports won't be the same after the NIL deals that that we've seen come out. And I'm curious what you see the impact that it's had on on women athletes specifically as it relates to closing that gap in earnings between men's and women's sports. Well, I would say um, the answer, the short answer is it's been a great development for athletes, period, mm-hmm. because now available to them are, as you said, income opportunities that previously didn't exist. And I chaired uh, the first of the now three NCA working groups that's been studying NIL. And I, you know, I co-chaired with Gene Smith, athletics director, at Ohio state. Mm-hmm. And we agreed at our very first meeting, we had to do this. It was only fair. Um, and you know, what we've seen on one hand is what I would call good NIL, which is income, um, opportunities that are available not only to football and men's basketball players, but also to women's athletes and Olympic athletes, sport athletes of all kinds. Mm-hmm. And frankly, the benefits, uh, the educational experience that goes around, that goes around uh, you know, entering into these business transactions um, have been a learning experience, I think, for many, you know, many athletes, which is a positive. The, the more difficult side of NIL is the fact that we don't have a national standard Mm-hmm. The state laws are kind of running the show. Right. They vary. Um, you know, we have some two basic principles that were meant to be followed around NIL not being able to, you know, not being uh, a recruiting inducement, a bribe, if you will, to mm-hmm. come to or stay at a particular school. And, and you know, having a legitimate quid pro quo so that the payment isn't just for being the star point guard on the basketball team. Right. It's got to be for some separate you know, legitimate service that that athlete is providing. And we're seeing some troubling examples, I think, lately um, since, you know, the year and a half that NIL has come into being. And that part has to get cleaned up. It just has to. I don't have any solutions to offer you, you know, Annie or your listeners on that. But that's that's kind of the the state of it. And it's, it's become, you know, troubling for the administrators especially. But again, back to your point, I, you know, I think women's athletes have certainly benefited, and I'll, I'll you know, I'll identify UConn women's basketball as right. a prime example. I mean, Paige Beckers has, you know, has been very successful with Endeavors. AZ Fudd, the same. Uh, I mean, just really, really tremendous commercial interest mm-hmm. in them, um, in their marketing ability, their Instagram followings, et cetera. And that, you know, what can you say? That's, that's, you know, that's great. And I hope, frankly, you know, that pro women's athletes, not just the tippy-top tennis players, for example, that, you know, that WNBA plays. I don't have a handle on endorsement opportunities for them, but I do hope this, you know, this opening up in the college space is a good omen for what, you know, women's team sports athletes across the board could command in the marketplace. Right. Well, it's hard to believe that, players like 
Paige Beckers won't what what she's earning as a college player won't translate when when she you know one day plays in the WNBA and is ex- obviously expected to play in the WNBA one day so that's something that I think is going to be really interesting to watch how these young players who are commanding the NIL market carry that command into the professional leagues that that they eventually make up. Um, another topic I really wanted to get into with you was conference realignment. And you said during Big East Media Day in October that you don't see the Big East remaining at 11 schools forever. And one school that's been speculated about potentially joining the Big East in the future is Gonzaga, which obviously everyone in Chicago knows Courtney Vandersloot played at, put in four great years there. And given its rich basketball history, is is that... Is that the kind of team that you see joining your conference or, or you see being being um, the type of school that the Big East would would pursue in joining the conference? Well, I, you know, I, I would say that, um, you know, when you're considering, you know, membership in a conference, you look at a lot of factors mm-hmm. and um the, the good news for what I call the new Big East, the Big East that I'm running that's basically been around for 10 years mm-hmm. versus the 40-plus year history of the old Big East, mm-hmm. um, you know, they, we, the, the, the beauty of this configuration um, now is that the schools have a lot in common. They're, we don't sponsor football. A few play, but we don't sponsor it. Basketball is really the lead sport. They, um, they're sort of geographically, you know, we have a sensible geographic configuration. The schools have common values. Nine of our 11 right now are Catholic schools. Um, they have great basketball traditions. They have great fan bases, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, you're right. A school like Gonzaga really is a, is a great fit for a conference like the Big East. But it's not the only factor that, you know, would come into play, um, you know, as we think about future expansion. I mean, we, you know. The first question is, do you even want to expand? Because mm-hmm. then you have to be pretty sure that to be, you know, to put it in business terms, the the you know you have another mouth to feed at that point. So right. you have to be sure that any revenues that um, you know come from adding a new member or two members or four members or whatever are going to allow the existing schools not to go backwards mm-hmm. in terms of their, um, you know, in terms of their you know, um, you know how they how their hand how their financial distribution is handled by the conference. So, um, so those are the kinds of factors we look at. When I said the Big East may not will not stay at eleven forever, that, that's true. I mean, forever is a long time. But I, you know, I can tell you honestly, we, there really is no timetable at this point for our conference to grow. I think we feel pretty pretty good about our stability, mm-hmm. frankly, at a time when. Um, you know, when there has been, as you, as you noted, a lot, a lot of movement among right. sort of the pieces on the board here. It's not just the big conferences where we've seen seismic moves, but some of the smaller conferences have also seen sort of the musical chairs going on. Right. But here, you know, we have been pretty fortunate, knock on my head, um, in the last couple of years that we're, you know, our, our membership is, is pretty stable compared to some others. And that's good because it just means – you know, people aren't looking over their shoulder and you can try to develop a long-term plan and you can think about, is there anybody that would really add something to our league in our case, in terms of our reach, in terms of our basketball prospects, 
you know, do, do they make sense geographically? Do they make sense in ter terms of mission and fit? Do they meet the academic standards that our, you know, our schools have maintained, et cetera? So lo lots to think about. But, you know, punchline is we're right now we're good at 11, but it, it's very it's very possible that that could change someday. Got it. Got it. You know, before I let you go, I, I did want to get back to the WNBA for just one more question for you. Um, you know, our, our listeners are are WNBA fans, um, loyal WNBA fans. And, you know, you left the league like like we talked about um, over 10 years ago in 2005. And since then, the league has changed significantly. But there are still a lot of hurdles, I think, that the league faces. And so um, just your professional experience, not just in the WNBA, what do you see as the biggest hurdle facing, still facing the WNBA today? And how impressed are you by the changes that the league has made over the last 10 plus years since since you left? Well, th there's, there's one, there's just a simple answer to the question of what it takes mm -hmm. for a sports league to keep going and keep growing, and that's fans. It's just that simple. Um, it's the people, it's, you know, your listeners, the people who come to games, pay money for their tickets, watch the games on television. I want to sound, you know, corporate here, but those, those eyeballs, mm -hmm. that, those two eyeballs per head translate into advertiser interest because advertisers want to reach those fans and they're willing to pay money to the networks and that in turn fuels the network's right fees to the leagues, and those monies, right fees especially, end up driving up player salaries. It's really a pretty simple equation, and I witnessed this when I was at the NBA mm -hmm. in the late 80s. The league just kept growing and growing and growing, and the players benefited from, you know, from that prosperity. And so I think that's really, you know, the WNBA, that's got to be job one, is how do we build more fans? How do we get more people watching on television more people in the arena paying higher prices uh, for their tickets, and then ultimately getting corporate America to buy in in a bigger way because that's another important um, source of not only revenue but promotional muscle. So I think, you know, that that's what it's got to be. I, I mean, to be honest, you know, the first year of the WNBA, we thought we were going to average 5,000 fans a game. We doubled that. Mm -hmm. We averaged 10. The second year, we did better. The third year, we were still in the nine to ten thousand range, average attendance, mm -hmm. and then the league kind of tailed off. And I don't know what it is now, but it's not at ten thousand. I'm pretty sure. So somebody like me, I saw the early successes and the initial interest, and maybe it was just curiosity, you know. But those are my memories, and then things, you know, got harder. And so that's the job for the WNBA and team leadership is. You know, in, in a more cluttered environment, by the way, mm -hmm. when we started the league, you know, there wasn't a competition from other leagues. There was no women's pro soccer league. Major league soccer wasn't what it is today. The NBA wasn't playing in the summer, you know, in a robust way like they are now. The national team is every other year. So there's a lot going on in the summer that the league now has to compete against. So it really is a complex equation is what I would say. And, you know, but the but the simple answer is, Fans will help the league grow. Um, and so, you know, what I'm, you know, I'm impressed by the way the league, the players have stepped up. 
um, you know, have let their voices be heard. I, we didn't have, they didn't have that opportunity in my day because we didn't have social media. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was all through this, you know, sports information director. Mm-hmm. It was sort of the traditional promotional channel. So now the players can sort of go directly to consumer. They can make their views known. They, they feel empowered. They act empowered. They're putting their voices against important causes. And the, the league seems to be building a, a brand around, um, around equity in a way that, you know, wasn't happening. And when I, you know, I, the way I describe it to people is when we started, like the league was the cause. Mm-hmm. The league itself was the cause. Just getting it going. You know, we were, we were, you know, we were signaling women are important. The league is proof of that. And now I think what you're seeing, the league is sort of, you know, has established itself enough that the, that the players can now turn their attention to other causes and use the league as the platform to promote the causes that mean the most to them. And I think that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And I'm, I'm impressed by the way that's evolved over the last few years in particular. Yeah. The, the WNBA certainly has a brand all its own and, and it's powered by the players and it, it's, it's changed, you know, since the league's inception in 1996, first season in 1997, Val, you were obviously a huge part of of the league's birth and establishment and today it's just been an absolute joy getting to hear some of those stories from you and, and share them with our listeners so i i thank you for your time here today it, it was it was a great conversation Some people just know the best rate for you is a rate based on you with Allstate. Not one based on the driver who treats the highway like a racetrack and the shoulder like a passing lane. Why pay a rate based on anyone else? Get one based on you with DriveWise from Allstate. Not available in Alaska or California. Subject to terms and conditions. Rates are determined by several factors, which vary by state. In some states, participation in DriveWise allows Allstate to use your driving data for purposes of rating. While in some states, your rate could increase with high-risk driving. Generally, safer drivers will save with DriveWise. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates Northbrook, Illinois.